You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs, no we don't Everyone and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 52. I'm your host, Sarah, with my two co-hosts today, Jeb Card and Ken Fader. And today we're talking about King Tut's curse and what the reality is behind the stories. What was the curse? When did it start? And what were the wonderful things that were seen in King Tut's tomb? Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I'm joined today by my two co hosts, Ken Fader. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jeb. And Jeb Card. Hello. And so it's three for the price of one tonight. So yeah, we're a bargain. Yeah, we're still we're still tempting the end times here, uh, as we did before. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, originally, I was just going to let you guys do this podcast on your own anyway, because I was going to be at Gen Con, but that didn't work out. So uh, I decided to sit in on One of my colleagues is going, actually. Gen Con's great. Yeah, no, I'm sorry I'm missing it this year, but No Man's Sky launches this weekend, so I will console myself somehow. I, I should go at some point. Uh, Gen Con, for the listeners who do not know, is a big friggin' geek hangout. It is basically the sort of, you've heard of Comic-Con? This is the equivalent for D&D and other such super geeky things. We, we so. like to call it Nerd Mecca, so yeah. yeah. But no, I, I, I only live a few hours away from it, so I should probably go. I just have not really kind of gotten up the gumption. But anyway. <laughs> in, in D&D, uh, and- mummies require fire to be killed, which means we might need some fire this evening. Yes, because this evening we are talking about... Uh, King Tut and other various mummy myths. There you go. He was not born in Arizona and did not move to Babylonia, despite Steve Martin's song. Hmm. If you guys can mention Gen Con, I can go back for oh, yeah. years and mention Steve. That's Martin. a classic, though. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And he did, he did it fired. on the he did it on what was it, the 40th anniversary thing last yeah. year. Yeah. Big SNL. Is that he, right? he did the King Tut thing again oh, live. My yeah. God. I'm impressed that he can still move. Yeah, well, it's Steve Martin. <laughs> That's true, but still. So the, the the deal that we want to talk about with King Tut, because everybody thinks they know who King Tut is, and everybody knows thinks they know what Tutankhamun's all about and all that. So we want to kind of delve in some of the origin myths, specifically around the curse of the mummy, which King Tut is the origin of the, the as we know it, the mummy's curse, correct? Mm, no, it is not. It is actually kind of the last gasp of it in some senses. Oh, really? So what was the first mummy's curse? Well, um, we're going to talk about this. I think we're going to unwrap it, and I didn't really want to go with that pun, <laughs> but I just did. <laughs> I, I, you, you all know I hate puns, and yet they somehow seem to happen. It may just be because I talk a lot. However, uh, before we get into anything further, I want to strongly, and I mean strongly recommend... Roger Luckhurst's The Mummy's Curse, The True History of a Dark Fantasy. This was published by Oxford University Press in, it should be 2012. Uh, That is correct. It is a fantastic book, and it starts with King Tut and then drops it because it's chasing the story of the mummy myth or the mummy's curse myth before that. And he basically argues, or do you want me to kind of give it away at this point? No, go for it. 
his basic argument is that a lot of it has to do with colonialism. Because when the, the mummy's curse starts to really appear in, say, English culture, British culture, is when, to put it mildly, shit started to go really bad for them in North Africa and in the Middle East. And there are several earlier ones. And I, we, I think we should start with Tut, but that is not where the idea begins. The idea of a mummy's curse, a cursed artifact case, uh, all these things was decades old when Tut uh, was excavated in 1922 and when Lord Carnarvon dies on April 5, 1923. Uh, so it, it's, it's a much older idea. And in fact, uh, the one that was the most famous is what's called the unlucky mummy case. And if you go to the British museum, it is on display and I don't think they mark it as such, or if they do, it's not like a big deal. It's just one of a bunch of other mummy cases, but that's been blamed for any number of deaths, the supposed death of the guy who's basically the inspiration for the Hound of the Baskervilles, and we can talk about that, the sinking of the Titanic, and the start of World War I. Okay, so how does a... You're talking about the sarcophagus or the, the lid that goes the, around the, the sarcophagus? Lid, the lid of it. This is a much later mummy case, and so it's it's one of the portraits. Like, if you think a mummy case, if you go Google Unlucky Mummy, you'll see this thing. It's exactly what you think it looks like. It's nothing special. It's just that it kind of got wrapped up. And frankly, I think we can probably blame Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, as we're going to see, kind of gets in on this business with King Tut as well. So You're going to tear about Conan Doyle on me, aren't you? You can't, you can't let me have anything. You can't let me have Lovecraft. You can't let me have Conan Doyle. He is kind of responsible for the idea of a mummy's curse. He's, he's probably one of the most, if not the most, responsible person for it. You're going to tear Poe apart, too? He didn't like birds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Uh, okay, so the unlucky mummy case. This wasn't. Was that the origin, or? Well, no. I mean, Luckhurst. He, he talks about. It's just separate. the most that famous is, of them before Tut. Yeah, there's definitely there's a couple of them. That's the most famous. Basically, uh, I'm not going to get into. All, go read Luckhurst's book. It is friggin' fantastic. But um, and I don't know the man, so you know. Uh, but um. Basically, a bunch of a bunch of Brits get involved with this case, and supposedly some of them get killed and injured, and it's all this. But 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 what Luckhurst argues is that this is all after. So prior to I want to say I want to say 1882, but prior to the 1880s, while the Brits had a lot of power in the Middle East, they uh, they didn't literally own the place. They had not literally occupied Egypt. The, the Suez Canal was really important to them for over a century, but or, or the Suez was for over a century. But um, they take it over. And when they do, all the kinds of bad things that happen to empires in that part of the world start to happen, including most famously the uh, the Khartoum uprising, the Mahdi uprising, when General Charles Gordon and, and his column are basically destroyed in Khartoum. Uh, Gordon himself was an archaeologist. But uh, uh, basically when, when Brits start coming back in body bags, there had been mummy stories. There had been mummy stories, but most of them had been funny, and Poe has one of them, or they had been sort of allegories, so the mummy often acts as kind of like a comment on um, modern life and all of its problems, or they're kind of creepy colonial in that you've got like archaeologists going to the Middle East or people going to the Middle East or they just somehow get their hands on a mummy, and it's part of or entirely the body of some beautiful Egyptian princess. And they fall in love with this dead girl 
<laughs> that comes back to life. And it's basically like, so you went over there to mine oil or gold or diamonds, and also you dragged out a native woman. That's terrifying. Yeah, um, there's a lovely ballet actually written around that theme. Um, the a man and his a princely type of man and his manservants take shelter in a, a cave that turns out to be the burial cave of an Egyptian princess. And lo and behold, he's the reincarnated yeah. version of her lover, and she somehow is able to pull him into her dreams. It's a beautiful ballet. Exactly. Oh no, there's a, there's a bunch of those. There's a bunch of those. There's an early George Millier or whatever the guy with the the egg and the moon and you know the that the early filmmaker he made one like this so there's there's this was a very common thing but once the 1880s strike and this uh, in British culture now others had this but in theirs once things start to go wrong Luckhurst argues um that's when you start to have cursed artifacts when in essence there becomes this fear of contagion that these sort of horrifyingly pagan and other and racially other east is coming back because of what we've done. So, you know, if you think about it, your typical mummy's curse is what? Westerners go in for their own gain, break into something that's not theirs, and then it creeps back and haunts them and kills them. It's the exact same fear. It's a perfect it's metaphor. It's yeah. a perfect metaphor. Yeah, it's like we break in, we want this thing, but once we've made contact with this thing, we shouldn't have touched it. And so, it, yeah, no, it's very much, and of course, what this also should sound very familiar to you as, is I think there's pretty much the exact same thing is going on with the sort of, and also occurs around this time, the uh, North American indigenous, the, the Indian burial ground, the native burial ground curse thing, which is also really kind of an invention and largely sort of symbolizing colonialism. And that uh, shows up, so that shows up in movies in the last couple of decades. Oh yeah, yeah. Somebody builds their house on an old Indian burial ground and that releases the spirits and they're possessed and, 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 uh, that, that's a typical theme. Yeah, Daryl Caterine actually argues that that originates in Lovecraft. And when I got his article, I'm like, no, it doesn't. And then I read it, and it's actually a fairly persuasive argument. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that all of these cursed themes are actually just history not working out for the British. And so they're well, directly blaming that, that, curses of the native peoples of the lands they're trying to occupy? Well, they're not actual curses in these places. I mean, basically, it's Westerners freaking out. This idea right. of they take something—that's his argument. He actually—he actually throws it all the way back to Elgin, to the Elgin marbles, the mm. the the sculptures from the Parthenon that were were stolen by um, by Lord Elgin, who wanted to kind of increase in the early 19th century, so decades earlier than this, and not Egypt but Greece. He wanted to increase his, his social standing, and he's he's like, oh, well, other people are bringing these things back, and they're bringing these things back from Napoleon. I'll do the same, and he steals them. And he really does, like, from the time he's literally boxing them up and taking them. It's not a legit deal. This is not like us going back and going, oh, that's terrible. People at the time were saying it. And actually, the person who said it the loudest was Lord Byron. Lord Byron, the romantic poet, who everybody was in love with. And his he, he was famously called Mad bad and dangerous to know. And he's the one who hangs out with the Shelleys and Polidori uh, very famously. And I, I, I'll tell this story very quickly. I know we're getting, we got our mummies. We're going to get our vampires in now. So we're going to have our, our, our Frankensteins and our, and our Wolfman soon. But um, no, that very famously, there's the whole 1816, the time, and I think it's Austria where the weather gets really bad, where they're uh, the, the Shelleys and John Polidori and Lord Byron on vacation. This is after that whole volcanic eruption kind of causes the year without a summer. 
And since they don't want to go out and they got nothing better to do, they create the contest to tell the best ghost story. Mm. And that's when Frankenstein is created by Mary Shelley. John Polidori creates the first fictional vampire story that same night. And it's basically clearly based on Lord Byron. So every like sexy, dangerous vampire is basically based on this real guy. And he was obsessed with the, the Greek nationalists. He died there actually of dysentery uh, fighting against the Ottoman Empire for them. Uh, but before that, he had attacked Lord Elgin. He had basically made Lord Elgin's name mud because of what he was doing to, to sort of the classical Greek arts. And so Elgin lost money on the deal. Everybody hated him. His wife left him. And then his face fell off because of syphilis. So kind of the moral of the story, and again, this is this is all from Luckhurst. This is all from Luckhurst. This, uh, he argues the moral, well, I'm arguing the moral of the story is don't steal shit because then a vampire will like rip your face off. But, um, or your face will Be a syphilis. Yeah, but uh, he argues that, the, that that's the beginning of the sort of colonial ex expropriation equals cursed artifact idea. And I think there's something very much to that. Mm -hmm. So what we're saying here, we start talking about King Tut, is there is a there is a context for the myth of the curse of King Tut? This doesn't this doesn't arrive with King Tut. That there's no. a context for a the the cursing of a mummy of of artifacts, and oh, yeah. that this just feeds on that. Yes, absolutely correct. And so there were several of these. And after the the unlucky mummy, there was the whole also the the the. Uh, these scare returns where uh, collectors like rich folks would send, even middle class folks would send back stuff they had picked up or bought from the Middle East, freaking out that it was going to kill them. It's kind of like the whole Brady Bunch. You have to return the Tiki Idol to Hawaii. Or like uh, those stones that people pick up off of, uh, and I think it's another thing from Hawaii, the cursed beach. Yes. Where if you yeah, take the, the stones well, home, it, it does nothing but give you bad luck. Unless well, you and, there, the and, and there's the there's the Pele artifacts, Mount Pele, and uh, and all that. And I've even heard the same thing from Gettysburg. And there's petrified wood. So this is a very common idea. But yeah, the mummy's curse is a major part of that. But what's also swirling all around this, and again, this is kind of a major part of luck curse stuff. Although it's stuff I've also researched myself in other other factions, is that so much of archaeology. And and all this stuff, and especially people like E.A. Wallace Budge are in the occult world. I mean, basically, one. Of the, so the, the way Luckers got in on this, he was he's a researcher more on English lit and history, and he he looks at the London Gothic, this idea in the 19th century. Like if you think of um, so many of our horror stories and our our sort of like other things, like that, all appear in this period, and most of them appear in like places like urban Vic, uh, Victorian London. Dracula is probably the best example, but there's many others. Um, he he noticed in an article in 2010 and then in, in this book, he's like, you know what happens? The British Museum opens, starts to become a major part of uh, the culture of London. And then within a few years or a couple of decades, but by the 1860s, the Theosophy Society and the Swedenborgs and the and the Golden Dawn, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and all these mediums all pop up within a few blocks of the British Museum. It literally becomes the center of, in essence, magical London. And in part, that's because it had so much Egyptian stuff and Egyptian stuff because of the Greeks and what they thought of the ancient Egyptians since the time of Alexander was considered kind of the fount of all mystical knowledge. So that's going on too. So all of this is kind of blending together and kind of culminating with King Tut. So then, so the, of course, the question to be asked then is, all right, so we, we, you've, you've given us the context uh -huh. Now, in 1922, they find the, the Tut's tomb, they enter into it, 
And what what happens next before the death of Carnarvon that gets people all riled up about the possibility that by uh, by entering the tomb, by opening it up, they've released some horrible um, uh, spirits into the world and that people are going to die as a result. Well, let's get our cast of characters. So I think everybody knows the name Howard Carter. I think a lot of people, he even got a Google Doodle um, a few years ago. But so he's probably one of the most famous archaeologists because of this. Uh, so we got Howard Carter. Google we, Doodle? Like those things like on holidays. No, he's famous because he got the Google Doodle. No, he's famous enough to get one. <laughs> like the only archaeology types I know are him and and, and uh, Mary Leakey are the only ones that have gotten any. So he... It was sort of from a, a kind of like not – He's everybody's like, oh, he must be some high-end lord. No, his father was a, like a animal and landscape painter for wealthy people, and he basically hung around, and they saw his sort of innate talent as an artist. So he gets picked up and turned into Egyptology. You know, he gets kind of brought in. So he did not have money back him. He didn't have titles, which is why I'm pretty sure it's not Sir Howard Carter. So all right, so he's the archaeologist. He's the talent. The guy paying the bills is Lord Carnarvon. And if you know Downton Abbey, that house is the Carnarvon house. It's based on the Carnarvon family. And so he's spending money like families would do to kind of like have fun, get prestige, et cetera. Spending money to get what's called partition, like make a deal. I will give you X amount of money and I get digging rights in this section of the Valley of the Kings. And then we'll negotiate what percentage of stuff I get to keep and that the Egyptian museum gets to keep. And... We'll talk about that a little later because I think one of the reasons this touch stuff blows up is there's a very different political context that's going on literally right around that time. So those are our two biggest characters. Now, Carter had been looking for Tut's tomb for a really long time. King Tut's, uh, King Tutankhamun, he dies when he's a teenager. He is a new kingdom king. He's right after the whole mess with Akhenaten and Amarna and the heretic king. He's probably his son, but uh, he dies. The newest tomb had to be somewhere and it hadn't been found. It was the only one still kind of like lying around. And Carter had found clues to it, like a cup here, other things here. He's like, it's got to be here. And he kept looking and looking and he had worked through several patrons. Carnarvon was his last one and Carnarvon paid him to go looking for various things, including the Tut tomb. And within a few months of the contract basically running out with the Egyptians, uh, basically, Carnarvon said to Carter, you got a few months left, and then we're done. And that, like it always happens in archaeology, it's like, oh, last day of the season, thing just got found. That's, that's right. what we do with all archaeologists. Um, <clears throat> they find in November 1922, like the end of November, right around Thanksgiving time, um, they find this tomb, and they bust in. Although it takes some time because it is being this is being done scientifically as much as there's like certain weirdness going on. This is being done scientifically. So I think what we'll do is we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what does happen and why the press in particular might have been primed to be more than happy to pass on some serious supernatural cursage. Hosted by archaeologist Emily Long, Trial Tales is an archaeology podcast with stories told by archaeologists about the crazy world of archaeology. Emily weaves a tale of wonder and excitement with her intriguing questions and imaginative editing skills. Check out Trial Tales today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash trial tales. Now let's get back to the show. 
And we are back. And Jeb, you were telling us how they had just found the tomb. I remember there being something in the newspaper about uh, when they chiseled the little hole in there, they were like, what's in there? And he says, it's treasure. It's full of treasure. He says, so So they break They break a little hole and, and Carter shines the, the candle in and they ask him, well, what do you see? And, and his, his immortal response is, Wonderful things. Yeah. Wonderful things. That's Wonderful right. things. And and he was right. And and by the way, so if you're if you know, and of course, go Google an image, or we can provide one. But um, this is not like oh, there's a big open hallway. I'm going to walk through with a few things. This is basically think of a um, a you rented storage place. Right. And That's it really, is yeah. full. Like yeah. it's about it's about two standard size U rental storage ones, like sort of in an L shape, and it is full of just everything. But it's not and everything stacked of, on top of each other. Yes, yeah. There's not room. To, it, it took ten years to cat of like full solid work to catalog all of this very scientifically because uh, it was just so much. And so there, I mean, it wasn't full of dirt. I mean, if you went in, it would be air. I mean, it would be like you're walking in, it's preserved in that sense. And it was perfect. There was some looting initially, but they didn't get in. Uh, they got little things, but then they were stopped. Um, yeah, but, the, the tomb kind of looks like those, those shows on cable about hoarders. Oh yeah. yeah. Only, only, only they were hoarding really cool shit. Oh yeah. And, and, and some of it was food and things and game pieces, but some of it was Friggin' amazing. I mean, he is in a sarcophagus that's got multiple sarcophagi lining this box, and the inner one around him truly is a giant 24-carat solid gold coffin. I mean, this is a lot. There's a reason why this is famous. There's a reason why the world lost its collective mind over this. Well, so, I've seen the King Tut treasures. I've seen them twice now. Um, once in Cincinnati and once when it came to Indianapolis, that stuff's still really cool. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. not really one for like getting all teary eyed over individual artifacts, but the King Touch shit is cool as hell. Yeah, Did you see it in so basically nice. like 2009 around then? I, I don't remember the exact dates. I know that I saw it in Cincinnati when they had it there and I just happened to be in Cincy at the time. But and like then... not in the 70s. I oh, saw God, no. I I'm saw not it that in the old. 70s. I saw it, I think it was in Washington, D.C., uh, but I saw it in the 70s, which was maybe the first time that stuff had come to the United States. Well, not only that, it was, it was most of it in the 70s. I mean, the, the mask, everything, the, the, the 2008, 2009 one got criticized because they did have Tut stuff, but most of it wasn't Tut. It was, I think it was right. called King Tut and the Golden Age of the Pharaohs. Now, for me, this was fantastic because it means I got to see a whole bunch of things. Right. But a lot of people were like, where's the gold mask? Where's right. this? Yeah. Where's I got that? to see the gold mask. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I, I that have seen not, that, and it is really cool. That did not go everywhere, because when I saw it in Atlanta, it was not there. Uh, well, that, it must have been in Cincinnati, because I didn't have a digital camera when I saw it in Cincinnati. So, Because if, if it had been there and I had had a camera, I would have taken a picture. But no, it is astonishing material. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and, and here's the thing. As, as we have analyzed this, so first off, Tut dies early. He, his name starts as Tunanka Ten because of this whole thing. His father was a heretic king. We think it's his father, uh, Akhenaten. Um, but he's, in essence, when they restore it back to the old gods instead of just one god, the, the sun god, and not even the, the main sun god like you know Amun-Ra, but the god of the sun disk. Um, right. But uh, 
he wasn't a king for long. He probably had people behind the scenes pulling him, and he dies young. There is there are strong reasons to believe, including like artifacts that have been modified in his tomb. But that tomb may not have been meant for him, that he dies unexpectedly, and they're like, shit, or whatever in the Egyptian for <laughs> shit is. So they quickly clean this thing out. They're like, get him as much as he needs to go in the afterlife stat, and they put him in. So yes. Now, isn't though, his death mask supposed to actually be his mother? Uh, that gets into whole other things, including like what's behind yeah. the walls. I've not heard his death mask, but I think some of the other things maybe. I don't know. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, but yeah, can you imagine. Can you imagine being the poor bastard? That's your tomb. You're some important noble, <laughs> and they say, "Sorry, pal, <laughs> King Tut's dead. We're we're appropriating yeah. this, and you're on your own." That's but funny. The, oh, absolutely. The thing to remember, though. This is the only tomb that's not built. And we're like ooing and eyeing over everything in there, as we should be. This is the only reason why, is this is the only unlooted one, and right. it's an afterthought tomb. Ramses right. II, Ramses the Great, has a hundred chambers for his various sons in his giant tomb. If you can even begin to imagine what that might have been like, right. it's just madness yes Tut -Tut so, is a minor he's a minor pharaoh he rules for 10 years what is he not between 9 and 19 something so like yeah, that it, yeah. it's unimaginable what a really significant pharaoh who's yeah. ruled for decades what his tomb must have looked like before it was looted but nothing Especially like in that like has, a, a time of great prosperity for the kingdoms oh yeah i mean this is the new kingdom this is this is egypt at its imperial height right. so so they've got you know they got all these amazing things so they break in they do these things, but they're breaking in scientifically. There's some suggestion that that Carter goes in early to make Ooh. sure that the, the tomb, because he had once like had this big, huge, we're going to open this tomb, and there was nothing in there. And there's been this suggestion that maybe he broke in and looked ahead of time and then like shoved a statue in front of the hole. And I don't know what to think of that. But well, either wasn't way. Carnarvon, Carnarvon was in England at this time, so he yeah, had exactly. called to Egypt. So right. Tut, I mean, the, the argument there is that Carter had, had to know, to yeah. had, he had to know there was something in there before he was took the risk of telling Carnarvon, you better come, we've got an unplundered tomb. Exactly. Now, exactly. when they opened the tomb, there was a, uh, as I have heard on the internet and whatnot, more specifically on television, there was a, a, a gas, wasn't there, that like engulfed all of them and they all died in, in, instantaneously, right? <laughs> yes, everybody uh, died. Everybody actually, died. I, I believe there may, I may, there may have been a gelatinous cube. <laughs> That, that, that slowly, slowly them. moved towards them. That's about as real. No, that's not. That's not the case. There was also no inscription of of you know death comes on wings or whatever. That's been said, but that's also not true. So what happens is Carnarvon gets there and he's there with. By the way, if you've seen the 1999 movie, the in, in sense the Mummy movies, the ones with um, Brendan Fraser, Brendan Fraser, and initially Rachel Weisz. Rachel Weiss is only the first one is any good. Yeah. The, the original, the, the, she plays Evie Carnahan. Well, Carnarvon's daughter is, and she's there, and she's in a lot of the pictures, is Evelyn Carnarvon. So it's pretty oh. obviously that's who she's supposed right. to be. Uh, so they all start doing their work and all these things. Um, but no, there's no gas. There's no all these things. But Carnarvon did something that, while was not super common, was also not unheard of. He sold the rights to the Illustrated News of London. Now, the Illustrated News of London was this big, huge broadsheet with really beautiful pictures, kind of think like Life magazine, sort of. Mm -hmm. um, and they were the best 
place for publishing archaeology. They loved publishing news stories on all the amazing things of archaeology because archaeology is really big news at this time. Uh, I mean, everybody thinks that King Tut did it. And we'll talk about that, I think, when we have another episode later on. But it actually had been growing before that. It, you know, like I've actually graphed this out with data that we'll talk about in another episode. But um, uh, th there was a, this huge interest, and the Illustrated News of London was the place to get it. And so the Illustrated News of London joined up with the New York Times to basically own the stories. So they were the ones who got the exclusives from the Carnarvon and Carter camp. All the other press, and this became a massive thing. I mean, there would have been, you know, think of any news madness today that's in the news every day, and I don't want to get into Trump, but um, but that's, you know, is every day. Uh, it would have been like that. Like, oh my God, what's happening with the Tut thing today? And so you can find news stories to things like, you know, rat enters mummy's tomb, going to eat all of, you know, I mean, all this bullshit that people are writing because there's a bunch of reporters, and we may come back to one of them by the name of John Balderson later. There's a bunch of reporters who want to report on this, but the exclusive rights are going to the people that paid the Carnarvons for it. So they're also willing to publish any old garbage. Now, when this becomes really important is in March, as things are going. Now, by the way, what's also going on in the background, first of all, the world is amazed. And Carter, at one point, after the things we're about to talk about, he actually takes off and goes on a speaking tour and makes a bunch of money, like going to New York and other places to speak, and then also gets into whole political fracas with the Egyptians. And actually, he basically pouts and shuts down the excavations for a year. Egypt is is becoming independent and is really pissed off at some of this stuff. I and mean, even though nothing's been none of the rules have been broken, they're increasingly like, why is this being done by outsiders? Mm -hmm. But never minding that for the moment. Um, so in March. Lord Carnarvon, who's there and all that, gets sick. Now, remember, he went to Egypt, actually, because he had been sick and it was dry, so it was good for him. But he gets sick. He comes down with a fever. And we believe this is because of an infected insect bite. That believes that that is, that is probably what happened. But remember, this is before antibiotics. Right. Um, but he gets sick. I mean, pretty sick. So this starts to be in the news. And... The reason why we established that the idea of a mummy's curse is not necessarily a big surprise, once he gets sick, newspaper men, enemies of Carter, all sorts of folks, opportunists, etc., start to come out of the woodwork and suggest, ah, the mummy's curse. <laughs> and you start to have these. One of these is Marie Corelli. She's an occult novelist. And she says she had read an ancient book, and that had said that there were poisons and other things, and that might be what's making Lord Carnarvon ill. And, and another one is Arthur Wegel. Arthur Wegel had been an Egyptologist, was an Egyptologist, but he was now a, a journalist, and he kind of really didn't like Carter. Basically, Carter had screwed him over. At one point, Carter had actually been in, uh, he had been a government bureaucrat. He had protected his workers, Egyptian workers, against uh, accusations that they had attacked some drunk French tourists, Basically, a bunch of tourists wanted to get into a site. I think it was Sakara. Um, and the, the guards are like, no, you're drunk. It's after hours, blah, blah, blah. And I got a fight got picked. And because it was Europeans and these guys were, you know, quote, unquote, natives, uh, they wanted to fire them all. And Carter's like, no, they did their job. So they fired Carter. Um, but he had been a bureaucrat. And he had rubbed uh, Waggle the wrong way at one point. 
And so he was kind of getting his revenge as well. On the one hand saying, oh, curses are stupid, but here's all this supernatural stuff I heard, so maybe curses aren't stupid. <laughs> um, and being all mean girl about it. So, girl. so basically people, the, this, this is starting, this rumor is starting to pass around and pass around. And then in early April, Carnarvon dies. And all of a sudden, all these stories look very, very prophetic. Mm -hmm. And this gets literally after the day after the news breaks, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, very famous for Sherlock Holmes, but at this point, also well known as a spiritualist. He had already attached himself to the Cottingsley fairies, these pictures of supposed fairies, like, you know, like with wings and all taken of that. By little, taken by little girls. By yeah, and they're obviously cutouts from a book. Like, they're really obviously cut out from a book. And he kind of had become a figure of almost public ridicule. Mm -hmm. um, but he was he became obsessed with spiritualism. Even though he created one of the most logical characters in all of literature, uh, as his life went, and especially after family tragedies, like many people at that time, he became a spiritualist. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked about the Unlucky Mummy case. He was actually really good friends with one of the guys involved in the Unlucky Mummy case, a journalist who then dies. Um, and... He eventually in the press proclaimed it the fault of elemental spirits that had caused it. Uh, this guy, by the way, who died, he was the one, he basically gave Conan Doyle most of the Hound of the Baskervilles. They met in South Africa when they were going home. I believe his name was Robertson. Uh, when they were going home, uh, they went to his home in Devon, which was clearly the inspiration. And they were driven home by a guy named Baskerville, and he told them stories about a spectral hound. So, you know, there you go. Mm -hmm. uh, so when all of this happens in 1923 with King Tut, Conan Doyle gets in the press and is like, it's totally elemental spirits again. And that cements, because he is a world celebrity, that cements the whole curse thing. And then things just run rampant from there. Yeah. Right. And the claim is that, 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 that Carnarvon was only the first of a long oh, yeah. sequence of people who had something to do with the tomb, who had entered into the tomb, and who then died one by one, often mysteriously thrown off of the tops of buildings, perfectly Suicides. healthy people. Suicides. and people, perfectly healthy people who came down with, with undiagnosable diseases who then die horrible deaths. Yeah. And the numbers grow and grow and grow, and if you hear people talking about the curse today, that's what they refer to. It's, oh, yeah. it's Carnarvon's the first, but there's a, a whole number of people. You even get, Jeb, I have actually seen people conflate somehow conflate the story of Tut with the sinking of the Titanic. Well, that's that, the unlucky mummy. The, right. That's the un, yeah. So again, No, so, but Ken's right. I've heard that blamed on King really? Tut, not on this unlucky. Yeah. yeah. I Somewhere. think no, Tut's Tut found un, 11 years later or 10 years later. Right, but well, I think the unlucky There's a time travel, the, there's a time travel element involved well, is, here, Jeff. It, it is magic. I mean, you know. It's magic. Um, so yeah, so no, exactly, exactly. Like you get like all these news accounts of people who start, I mean, this whole idea of death lists, we still see this in paranormal stuff today. Uh, you know, there's a certain, um, cryptozoologist author who I will not mention their name, who keeps, <laughs> who keeps a Mothman death list of all the people that like are, who, who have died because they either were associated with the Mothman in the 1960s in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, or because they were involved in the making of the Mothman prophecies movie decades later. And, and there sucked, are plenty. What's that? It sucked. <laughs> I kind of like that movie. If you get past the first 20 minutes, first 20 minutes are absolutely God awful. The rest of it's like a pretty decent X-Files episode. 
Yeah, yeah, it really was kind of like just a really long X-Files episode. Which, given that the X-Files took a hell of a lot of inspiration from the Mothman prophecies, is enti- like the, the book is entirely fair. So, yeah. um, I like it. I, I don't love it, I like it. So yeah. how, did, how did Carter respond as this, this myth of the, the curse is being promulgated? How did Carter respond? Uh, he, did, did he, he, didn't, he didn't, I don't think he cared. He was too busy like doing things and cataloging, and I don't—I—I I, I don't know if he ever even addressed it. And in, I it, somewhere he might along have. The line, I just don't know. Yeah, somewhere along the line, I've read that that there were people who actually blamed him for spreading the curse. That he used this as a tool to keep people the hell away from the tomb. Oh, uh, you know, so, I have—I have heard that. Yeah, I don't know. There's any evidence. He was kind of a cantankerous individual, so I wouldn't be shocked. Mm-hmm. So really, he didn't need a curse to keep people away. It was just well, his charming attitude. Yeah, I mean, he was stubborn. He was really, I mean, like like in the Sakura fight thing, he was in the right, but he ended up basically losing his job and being stuck with almost no money in Egypt for 10 years and probably ending up dealing in artifacts because he had to stay alive um, because he lost his job. Now, that's a righteous thing to do. On the other hand, it may not be the world's best plan. And right. he had that, and, and again, he shut down. Basically, when the Egyptians started horning, he's like, F y'all, fine. I'm closing up. Now I'm not gonna do any excavation. How do you like that? <laughs> and 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 it actually worked. Like they brought him back in. Everybody was so no. He had a bit of a temper, but he was a legit archaeologist. Very good. He was highly talented as an artist. He had a good eye for things. Uh, he didn't just stumble. I think that's the thing that bothers me. So first of all, they're like, oh, he must have been some like you know some toff. Some no. Right. He was basically from like the working to middle class. Uh, at that time, and he just was hyper-talented, and he never got his due because he was from that class. He was never Sir Howard Carter. He never got awards. The Americans gave him awards, but the British didn't, and I think that's because of his class. Mm-hmm. And then and then, secondly, um, he, uh, he didn't luck into it. He was looking for this for a really long time, and then when he found it, he treated it as it should have been. The only thing you can sort of accuse him of on that guard. Now he probably did deal some artifacts, but he wasn't as weird at that time as you might think. Um, is that he didn't publish enough, and a lot of his stuff never really got published before he died, and that's fair. He wasn't really an academic; he was just more of a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he is not like the. Well, I said yes, sir. I don't know what I'm <laughs> doing, but no, he's he's not that. And, and I kind of that really annoys me. Um, he, he was not the guy sitting in a, a lounge chair while the natives oh God, were no. fanning him. Every he was picture, a real field archaeologist. Every picture you see of him is in a ratty ass undershirt, and he's clearly been working all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's been sweating in that tomb. I mean, were there people that were working for peanuts, you know, for him that were Egyptian? Yeah, but he was not. Carnarvon is that guy, possibly. It's not Carter. Right. Um, but but anyway, yeah. So he I don't he may have used it. It wouldn't shock me, but I don't know if there's proof that he did. Now, Jeb, do, where does the story now? When Carnarvon dies, at least in 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 hindsight, people said, well, the the power went off all throughout Cairo when he died, yeah. and his dog back in at, at his house, who had not been sick, yeah, succumbed, died. The moment that Carter died. Now, when? How do those stories get started? You know what? Well, let's take that a break sounds, real quick. A, exactly. That sounds like a fantastic cliffhanger. Let's yes. take a break, and we'll explore it. And I won't spoil it here. There you go. 
Archaeotech Podcast, hosted by Chris Webby Webster and Chris Boone Sims, is a show dedicated to the technology of the modern archaeologist. On the Archaeotech Podcast, we interview people using interesting tech, and we dig into the issues, advantages, and try to uncover the disadvantages of the digital age and going paperless. We all know there is no paper in the future, or should we say, paper has no future. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archaeotech. Let's get back to the show. And we are back. And Jeb, you were getting to getting ready to tell us about where the dead dogs came from. <laughs> so, so what Ken's alluding to is, as various places reported, when Lord Carnarvon dies because of ancient pharaonic magics, uh, his his bird dies because an asp bites it. Oh right, his okay. His dog dies. The yes. power goes out in Cairo. Cats and dogs live together. Mass hysteria. <laughs> uh, and, and, and Ken's like, where is this coming from? What is the source? And the answer is, I have no freaking clue. Because uh, the thing is, this shit's Wait, made Jeb, up. Wait, Jeb, can you say that again? Just nice and clear for the, uh, for the I, audience. I, I believe I said, I have no freaking uh, clue. Okay, just making sure. All right. Yeah. I just want that on record. Yeah, because uh, I, I cleaned it up. But um, so no. people are just making this shit up. Absolutely. They were making shit up before. They were making shit up after. They've continued to. It's unfortunately part of the human condition. Well, it's like the perfect storm, though. You've got the guy who is connected closest to it, and he croaks. You've already got all of these things out there already. It's yeah. it's perfect. Actually, the way you put that makes me think of folklorists talk about a stention. A stention, they often use it when you talk about like, you know, the, uh, like imagine legend tripping when you go out to like a cemetery that if you go to a thing, you know, Bloody Mary and Slender Man oh, yeah. and Easter Bunny show up. And the thing is by doing this, you're adding to the legend. And that's what a stention means. By in essence, living out the legend, you're embodying the legend and you're adding to it. So this kind of feels like that. Like, mm -hmm. as you said, the legend is already there. Right. And then a thing that can sort of be sorted into it happens and it just strengthens it empowers well, is, it it's like the hexam heads that we just talked about it, yep. it's the same thing you know you've got everybody adding their own personal experience onto it and it makes it real yeah and there's a lot of bs about the hexam heads there's a lot of bs i mean that's the thing like and not just pseudo-archaeology or alternative archaeology or god knows what we're calling this as he is but any of these things even if there's a core event i mean we talked about roswell for example even if there's core event there's all this stuff that just gets added on and added on. And it's often either because somebody takes something from fiction. So for example, I mentioned that Marie Corelli thing. She comes up with this, this thing uh, on wings. Let me, let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, but she, she comes up with this death comes on, on swift wings or, yeah. or something like that. And uh, I'm looking for it. I'm see if I can find it. And that was that she made that up, or or she modified that from something else. And when she does it, uh, that gets stuck onto the door. Oh, here we are. Yes, uh, death comes on wings to he who enters the tomb of the pharaoh. Now. She's the one who said that. There's nothing on the King Tut door that says that, but because they put something like that in the 1932 movie The Mummy by John Balderston uh, and others, um, now that's what people believe. 
Uh, Michael Barkun calls this fact fiction reversals, and it's common in conspiracy theory and paranormal lore where these things will inspire fiction, and then fiction will do a thing that makes more sense, and then that will get put back into the quote-unquote real-world version. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you see that happening today. Even. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I can quote, well, the Kensington Runestone, actually, the whole Knights Templar BS that's going around yeah. right now. This is no, the same exact thing just happened. Right. And so and, and, I, and I think there's a lot of things there and we've talked about this a little. So, yeah, so that that's what's happening here. But um, the uh, where most of this comes from, we, we just have no freaking clue. It's just it's being acted out. Like you said, it, it is this idea is out there. Then a thing like it. Oh, my God. It's just like the script that already exists. And it further empowers that script. Now, uh, and the, it just the- takes a life of its own. Now, the concept of this curse and all of these odd ways that people who are supposedly associated with this dig, the way that they're dying, there's no actual fact to any of that. And there's no there there isn't a greater mortality rate among the people associated with the dig than people not associated with the day. Well, Ken, you've actually got but, an actual scientific study on this. Yeah, yes. you know, and, and well, still let me start by saying my, my very favorite story about the curse came from a documentary I saw years and years ago where these folks who said, yeah, there definitely was a curse, lots of people died, but they had this fundamental problem, which is Howard Carter, who is would have been ground zero for any curse if it existed, he survived he, for years, Cap- Carter um, survived, continued uh, digging the tomb, con- dig- continued yeah. um, analyzing the material for, is it, 17 or 18 years? And so that's a fundamental problem. And the funniest thing, I, this is how the folks who said, no, they're at, definitely, it's a curse, how they dealt with it. They said, well, yes, it's true that Howard Carter, who was the per- the most instrumental person in in getting it and in, in breaking into the tomb, uh that he didn't die, but perhaps he was cursed worse than anybody else because he was doomed to spend 17 years of his life dealing with the artifacts from the tomb, which is absolutely, you know, if that's a, a curse, where do I sign up I, for I a say, curse I, like I'm that? sorry, right? did, you, did you all just tell me I can have a 17-year contract? Is that what that's, you all just It's 10 years. He, he was in there for 10 years. But did somebody just say I can have a 10-year contract just doing archaeology only? For real? Isn't that what you're trying to do right now anyway, Jeff? It's a cur- it is a curse, though, Jeff. You're trying fair. to get tenure? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. That's, and that's kind of actually the point. Um, so, so yeah. But so, exactly. That, that's yeah. some serious, serious-ass bullshit. Yeah. And so uh, the deal here is that that you, you hear a lot about, well, maybe there was no curse on the tomb, but, but you can't argue with these numbers. You can't argue with all of these stories of people dying. And... Uh, Mark Nelson, who's an epidemiologist, wrote an article for the British Medical Journal in 1970, 2002, called The Mummy's Curse Historical Cohort Study. And basically what he did was say, well, we've got all these stories of people dying. Let's actually look at data. Let's actually look at um, folks who entered the tomb during the time, during these early years that the, the tomb was open, and let's look at their mortality rates and compare it to folks who also were in Egypt at the same time, who we know didn't enter into the tomb. And their sample size was 44. 25 of those 44 people actually were known to have entered the tomb of Tutankhamun. 19 people, these are these those, those 25 in this sample were all Westerners, they were all Europeans. 
Um, they use that as one sample. The second sample were 19 folks, also Westerners, also Europeans, who were in Egypt at the same time. So those are two nice samples. And obviously, if there was uh, uh, some kind of a curse on the people who had entered the tomb, the mortality rates of those folks would be much higher than the folks in Egypt, same time, same uh, same history, same from the same region, who did not enter the tomb, their mortality rate should be much lower. And when they did the numbers, it was really very obvious that there was no difference. Effectively, what they did was, what, the, what this guy um, showed, that very clearly the folks who support the notion that there really was a curse, that this is all about confirmation bias. Hmm. Confirmation bias is when you've got an idea, you have a theory, you have an explanation, that it is, even among scientists, there is a tendency to only recognize data that supports what you already believe to be true. And that things that don't support that, you ignore, not necessarily intentionally. Perfect example of that is the, the notion that during a full moon, people act really strangely and the and ERs, hospital, uh, emergency rooms and hospitals all over the country are filled with people who've done incredibly stupid, dangerous things. And, and it's because of the full moon affecting <laughs> human behavior. And you will hear people who work in ERs who will, who will have a really busy night. Somebody will say, well, what do you expect? The moon is full. And th that confirms their, their opinion that, oh yes, there is something to the notion that the moon affects human behavior in this way. Of course, on nights when it's really busy, but there's no full moon, that's ignored. That's, right. that's not thought about. On nights when there is a full moon, but it's kind of normal, not normal uh, uh, rate of, of admission to the hospital, that's ignored. But on those nights when there is a full moon or even something close to a full moon and it's busy, that serves to confirm what they already believe. So yeah, but Ken, Ken, those other nights had secret full moons. Secret full moons. Hey, listen, the moon's full somewhere, right? I, I remember talking to a student once who told me that, that, well, of course, the moon's gravity is much less when it's a crescent because there's less of it. And this is a college student. That has right. a, you understand that the, the moon isn't really a crescent. There's just a shadow over it. So it's still there. And he thought about it for a while and said, oh, I didn't think of that. I said, well, you, well, you really ought to. Ken, the, so, the moon is really just kind of a convex lens that just yeah. kind of turns on an unseen axis. Ken, you and your soulless super science are water wrong <laughs> with America. <laughs> and, I, and I take great pride in that, I guess. But the point here is, so yes, people did die who walked into King Tut's tomb. And every time that happened, somebody said, aha, this is an example of how how th there really is a curse, and it really is an effective curse, and it's causing people to die. Of course, that's confirmation bias. When somebody who never went in the tomb died some mysterious death, that's ignored. When some when people who spent years in the tomb, including Howard Carter, didn't die, but they didn't die suffer, they die they, a little on the inside. I guess so. I guess there was the implication is that like dealing with all these artifacts was just making him die what, on imagine? the inside, like. The, the Howard horror of being trapped with beautiful treasure for yeah. 17 years or something crazy like that. Yeah, poor Howard Carter couldn't couldn't relax, couldn't go to the casino, couldn't take a cruise. He was stuck there examining those goddamn artifacts. What a horrible fate. Yeah, I mean, maybe he was cursed the worst of all of, of, of us all.
You know, it was terrible. He was being paid to do what he wanted to do. It was awful. That's almost no. like he was like a professional or something. I mean, what the hell? Well, yeah. so now that article, that article. Uh, so one, uh, my my immediate reaction, of course, is well, both populations are in Egypt, and clearly all of Egypt was cursed. What's wrong with you? Possibly <laughs> the whole planet. Maybe the whole planet was cursed. You can't do those comparisons. So that's one. That's one. <laughs> my other one. That's, that's an interesting perspective. My other, my other, my other comment is: uh, I've read that article. If I remember correctly, that it's not different from other Europeans in Egypt, but like they actually beat the average life expectancy of the larger population at that. Oh, time. absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Because they're Europeans in yeah. Egypt. The, the funny oh, thing, class. here's the deal. I'm going to reveal something to you, Jeb. There actually is a curse associated with the tomb, and you can show it epidemiologically. However, it's not the curse of King Tut. It's the curse of the Y chromosome. <laughs> what these guys well, what these guys found out is that the only significant variable in, in being, being able to predict longevity was whether the person was a male or a female. The women outlived the men. So there well, is a curse. It's the curse of the Y chromosome. Yeah, well, it's because you know, it's broken. Happen. And I, 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 you got the broken chromosome. You can't help it. And, and I, I do need to literally break in. Are we still recording? Yes. Okay. Because uh, I accidentally hung up. So we will edit this out. All right. So go on. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. So, so, yeah. So, no, the, so the, the numbers are there that there, there's, there's no magic, but it's not even just magic. And, and, and this is another thing that, that I think drives all of us nuts because you'll get people who try to explain not magic, but with my scientific knowledge, yeah, I can explain so the curse with something else. So like, what have you guys heard as ways to explain the curse that doesn't need explaining because it doesn't friggin' exist? Well, there are a number of articles back in the early 2000s about how there's a mold, aspergillus, or, or a spores, or bacteria that were especially um, involving the food that was left in the tomb, that yeah. when it was open, these things became an aerosol, people yeah. breathed them in, and that caused these deaths. Yeah. But it's, it is fascinating that here we have a mystery that's not a mystery at all. We can show no. that, the statistics, there's nothing going on. And yet there were scientists coming out and saying, oh, we have a natural ex explanation for the curse of King Tut. And that's it's maddening because all they needed to do was look at the statistics to show they didn't have anything yeah. to explain. No, this is this is a larger this is a larger thing that I like to call pseudo-skepticism. Mm -hmm. It's it's you know, it's the swamp gas thing. You know, it's the uh, I can't come up, you know, I can't say a social reason. I can't give us like a, a, a human, a social science, as a humanities reason. I got to come up with some bullshit natural physical sciences. So this is a perfect example. There's no friggin' curse, but because people don't know that or don't accept it, they have to come up with like, well, it can't be complicated social reasons. It's got to be a mold. Right. It's got to be a gas. Well, and, and and there are any number of these. Another one. Well. It can't be because people were jackasses and there was a war that had happened and there was a lot of weird religious beliefs as to why people hung witches or accused witches at Salem. It must have been they all had ergot poisoning. Right. They all yeah, got, yeah. you know, or. Uh, oh, yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah. Oh, Same yeah. thing with the werewolfism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, or, yeah. It's like, oh, vampires can't just be people's fear of this and that. It must be porphyria, you know, and. I like to call that like, I either think of that as sort of like cocktail party skepticism, mm -hmm. 
where people want to sound clever and smart. And if you don't know what the fuck is going on, and we can bleep that out if you want, mm -hmm. um, that sounds smart. Well, I was a kid growing up in New York, and my parents would take me to the American Museum of Natural History um, you know, that during that Christmas break. And I'd always go to the Hayden Planetarium, one of the preeminent planetariums in the United States. And every goddamn December, the show would be The Star of Bethlehem, in which the whole show was about, was it, a, maybe it was a meteor. Maybe it was an, maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was a supernova. So again, Taking for granted the fact that yeah there really was something weird in the sky, let's let's determine, let's deduce yeah. a natural explanation for it. And it was every goddamn winter yeah. for years, and that's it's a typical, it's similar to what we're what we're talking. Yeah, about. I mean, and there's any number of things like this, and I think I think it's kind of this disdain. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think it's that people don't want to lose myths. You know, I mean, people have tried to argue. I think the ancient aliens thing has got much more going on behind it, but people have tried to argue. That's a way of keeping certain myths, but sciencitizing them. Uh, and I, I think that actually is legit here, where it's like, well, I like the idea of a mummy's curse, but I can't believe in magic. So, and, and the same with a lot of these other things. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is, I science for much of the 19th and until about the three quarters of the 20th century. Physical sciences definitely were had a lot of prestige. And if you could show that you knew them, there was a real value. Whereas the fact that this is basically culture, anthropology, history, uh, sociology, understanding these things explains this. I mean, like we've been well, talking about, there's a, there's a colonial background, there's a cultural background, there's the things going on in sort of a cult London background. But one, those take longer to say, and two, Frankly, that's, that's just, I think for a lot of people, I'm going, well, it was a mold because look at all the knowledge I have. Right. Even though right. they're just literally it makes making you sound some smart. Yeah, it's making some shit up. They probably read in a newspaper column. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, I, no, absolutely. I'm not saying that bothers me or anything. But. <laughs> no, I can't tell. Yeah. So, Ken, final thoughts on King Tut? Well, listen, um, I'm I'm starting to feel a little, you know, a little a little cough coming on. So maybe, I mean, it's just possible that the, <laughs> that the, the the Egyptian gods are are hearing our skepticism, and we'll all be dead by morning. I mean, that I, that could happen. I really I'm hope not. I have a new job to start. I that would be uh, really well, unfortunate. I'm un unlike y'all. I'm down with Tote, the god of civilization and writing. So I don't know what's gonna happen to you all, but I'm pretty sure I'm feeling pretty good. Also, I have an onk in my uh, in my uh, explorer's study right. Victorian room and where I do my writing. So I'm 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 feeling completely protected. Yes. Well, are I'm you like the guy you. from? Are you like the guy from the mummy movies who just has all of the different charms and can recite prayers in like five different languages? Why else would you get a doctorate? Listen, <laughs> listen. listen. Um, the, 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 the Boris Karloff movie, the black and white still scares the shit out of me. It's a it. good, and it's, it's a really good movie. They're both good. They have the same plot. And, and we had alluded to this earlier. Here's the kicker. The guy who wrote the original John Balderston, mm -hmm. he was a reporter that covered King Tut. He was one of those guys who was getting screwed with. So when he writes the 1932, he drew on real Egyptian legends. And maybe we'll tell that story in another time. Mm -hmm. But they're both good movies. 
and one's more actiony and kind of like a D&D movie, right. and the other is a creeping dread movie, and they're very different in tone, even though the, the, the story's basically the same, because they're both basically sp- the same story as set in the right. comic. I'll talk about that another time. But they're actually both good. I would recommend both. Absolutely. Well, there you go. Your movie recommendations from Jeb. Because I have <laughs> lots of taste, apparently. We, we get we have two thumbs up to both of the Mummy movies. Two, two <laughs> molding... Mold-filled, poison-filled, theosophical, <laughs> magical, hermetic thumbs up. Yes. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for joining me on this. And maybe next time we talk mummies, we'll talk about mummy powders and mummy medicine. Oh, yeah, yes. I think we can do that. And, and Jeff, right. you said you wanted to talk about the cocaine mummies, right? <laughs> I believe I did not say that. We, we will eventually get to cocaine mummies. So, yeah, please hang out for that but one. that is another story. Yes, and that, that's not people grinding up mummies and snorting them. It's something else entirely. Although that no, was... No, that's the- equally as entertaining. Yeah. All, right, All right, you guys, thank you very much, and I will talk to you later. You Bye. Bet. Good talking to you, Deb. as one will call No, we don't do a dinosaur Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Fantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Fantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.